Dr. Carmen Brown is an author, blogger, practicing OBGYN, and managing partner and founder of Expat MD. She currently resides in Melbourne, Australia, with her husband and young son. We talk about how she ended up practicing down under, how to make it happen yourself, what some of the differences are about practicing down there, focusing a bit more on the practice of OBGYN, and she dispelled some myths about limitations to practicing abroad, and we discuss a little about what it's like being a black woman in those countries. Dr. Brown has been overseas for over eight years and has become passionate about helping other physicians realize their options to live and work overseas. After assisting several doctors find jobs in either New Zealand or Australia, Dr. Brown decided to start ExpatMD, a full-service consulting firm dedicated to helping American doctors achieve their dreams of becoming an expat like her. She also published ExpatMD, your guide to living and working in Australia and New Zealand as a physician. She also writes a blog about life as a doctor mom with a child with autism at autismdrmom.blogspot.com. You can follow her on LinkedIn or Instagram at expatmd or on Twitter at Dr. Carmen B or at Autism Dr. Mom. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today we'll be reading... Docs in Shocks. Some docs are overworked as work works overworked workers weary. Some docs are overstocked, stopped as pandemic TikToks keep docs off clocks. If docs are in shock as the pandemic clock TikToks, then locums is the token to unburn the burnt out broken. So how many clock TikToks must talk until docs tick box and swaps to the spoken locum tenens token to unburn the burnt out broken? Enough ticks have talked. Time is now, and locums is how. Locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend mend to burnt out ends. For more locum tenens information, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory is your final destination. Dr. Carmen Brown, thanks so much for being on the podcast. You're so very welcome, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Your podcast looks very interesting. I've gotten a chance to listen to a couple episodes, so I'm excited. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So let's start off by giving us your best Kiwi accent. Go. Bush and chips. <laughs> okay, didn't understand what that was. What did you say? So fish and chips. That's oh. like my favorite Kiwi meal, and they do it so good. Oh, my God, it's so good. For whatever reason, kiwis have a little bit of a heavy U in certain things. So kuds is kids. Chips is chips. So fish is fush. That's yeah, where, that's, okay. that's where I get the fush and chips. <laughs> I just know Eminem from that one John Oliver episode. <laughs> there you go. Where they tried to ban Eminem. Okay, so tell us your origin story. How did you go from Carmen Brown OBGYN to expat MD? Probably very simple. And I think a lot of American doctors have probably felt this complete and utter burnout. <laughs> that was it. I found myself after a couple of private practices, just literally thinking that there's no way I have 20 more years of this in me. Like I cannot do this. And so I started looking at 
all the other different things you can do. Like I'm thinking, okay, should I go back to school and get my MPH and do some executive medicine administrative stuff or whatever in the office? Can I work for the WHO, do something? But the problem is I like clinical medicine and I just felt like it's just such a waste. Like I just really wanted to do this for a much longer time. And so I we just literally started thinking outside the box on what we could do. And it just so happened that my husband and I were starting to travel at that point, starting a little bit late in life as you do when you spent your whole first half of your life in school and residency and medical school and being broke. We were traveling around Australia, New Zealand, interesting enough. And in New Zealand, I met a family practice doctor who was American and she was like, get out. <laughs> That's usually how horror movies start. Exactly, right, Get right. Out. But for you, <laughs> so it was. She did that whisper to me on a tour. So, um, <laughs> you know, just chatting with her, and I'm like, I felt like I was stalking her. I know we we're supposed to be on a tour, enjoying ourselves. She's with her her husband, and I'm like following her around, like poking her. Like, Excuse me, can you tell me how you did this? After talking with her, I was like, okay, we can figure this out ourselves. And six months after we quit our jobs, and six months after that, we were in New Zealand, <laughs> and the rest is as they say history. But it didn't stop at New Zealand. It did like, not. where are you right now? Not. I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Been here for now five and a half years. I think when I say those things out loud, it like totally boggles my mind because it doesn't seem like I've been here that long. But when I like, when you put it all together, I'm like, oh my God, it's been almost like, it's been more than 10 years since I left home. And I think at a certain point, I think at like year six or whatever, I realized I don't think I could go home even if I wanted to. I'm so entrenched in the lifestyle, the work-life balance. And honestly, I'm quite spoiled. Like I would come home and be like, I'm going to need six weeks of vacation and two weeks of CME. And they're going to be looking at me like, are you kidding me right (laughs) now? So I don't think I have it in me to like give up a lot of those things that I've gotten over the last, you know, almost 10 years. But yeah, we moved to Melbourne almost six years ago now. We're actually citizens now of Australia. If you'd asked me years ago, would that even happen? I would have said no, because Australia was never on my radar. New Zealand was like my heart. And I was like, we're going to stay here forever. <laughs> but yeah, we moved to New Zealand, moved from New Zealand almost six years ago. And that was really because of family reasons. So my son is autistic and he had his diagnosis when he was two and a half when we were in New Zealand. And we lived in a beautiful small town. But when you, you know, have small towns, you have limitations. And those limitations include type of services that you can get. So we actually didn't have a speech therapist in our town and there was one speech therapist three hours away and she only came like once every month and a half or something. So like when you're dealing with a little person that needs a lot of extra support, that's probably not the best way to go about it because we we're very lucky having the ability to move from one country to another, especially when you're board certified. Yeah. We just kind of made the trip across the ditch and here we are in Melbourne six years later. Wait, board certified. That confuses me because I was under the impression that every country in the world or most countries, many countries had these reciprocal relationships with the U.S. Because in the U.S. you can't practice without doing a U.S. residency unless you're Canadian. Canadians, the U.S., that's it. So how So did you do you have to retrain each time? How does that actually work? Not at all. So that is, like you said, a common misconception. And I'm in a lot of Facebook groups and interest groups about this. And that is, I think, 
probably the number one misconception. And that is that a lot of people think that you're going to have to do another residency because they're used to that on the U.S. front. If you come to the United States from any other country, including Australia or New Zealand, you have to do a residency all over again. We just, we don't play that in the United States. But thankfully, that is not the way for people specifically from certain countries. So you will see that UK, Ireland, in certain cases, South Africa, and of course, Canada, the United States, we get treated a little bit differently because I think there is that level of expectation as far as our examinations. We have a USML and of course, our residencies and our board certification are recognized. And so if you are board certified and if you have a couple of years under your belt as an attending, you actually can move to Australia or New Zealand and work as a attending or what they call consultant physician. It does take an application. It does take some time. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through, but for the vast majority of us, we actually will be recognized as an attending physician. And usually after like a year or so of working here, you will be recognized in your respective college. I am boarded in the Royal Australian New Zealand College of OBGYN. So I have my post-nominal, so I'm Franz Cog and Faye Cog. So I got all these letters behind my name, which looks really cool. <laughs> so yes, I'm boarded here and in the United States still. Before the show started, you had said that you have people reaching out to you asking about other countries as well, not just New Zealand and Australia. So when that happens, what have you learned about other countries where we can practice, where we don't need to completely retrain? Very interesting. Believe it or not, there's a lot of reciprocity around being able to work, but there is a little bit of a hiccup in some countries in that you might have to learn the language. And during my travels, my husband and I did a six-month around-the-world trip. So after we quit our jobs in the United States, this is after we met the family practice doctor in New Zealand, and we were like, oh my God, are you kidding? We can do this. And we had this epiphany, let's change our lives. And so we quit our jobs, and then we decided, let's travel like for real, for Wait, a long time. Wait, was this time. before or after your son was born? This is before my son was born. Okay, okay. I wish it was like that cool, but no, <laughs> before he was born. So we went on this six month breakneck around the world trip. We visited 25 countries in six months. And part of the trip was we were also thinking about where else could we practice? And so a lot of places we went, we did a little bit of, you know, we did some research. We tried to go by clinics. We talked to some other doctors, people in hospitals and nurses. We actually rocked up to a hospital, I think in Sweden, <laughs> just to see if we could talk to somebody. Like knocked on the door. Excuse me. Hello. Yeah. Interesting enough, there's a lot of countries that you can work. However, the countries I was really most in love with, I really thought I could totally work in Italy, Denmark, the Netherlands, or Sweden. Don't ask me why. I just like those countries. That was really fun. I had a good time there. And you got to learn language. <laughs> so that's one little kind of hiccup there. And it's not just learn the language, like you have to be fluent. Yeah, so, medical like yes, jargon, yes, not just, yes, yeah. Yes, Interesting enough, there is a really cool group called Hippocratic Adventures. And there's a lot of doctors that are actually working in some other countries. This is not just Australia, New Zealand thing, but there's doctors that are working in Norway and the Netherlands and Ireland. And they like basically blog about their experiences and talk about what they had to go through to work in these countries. And so I think one doctor for the Netherlands was telling us he had to go to a language school for a year before he could actually work clinically in medicine. So I can imagine there's a lot of restrictions and difficulties in getting some other countries, but I don't think that retraining is necessarily one of them, especially if you're thinking about the UK, probably most of the EU. I'm thinking that language is probably going to be the biggest barrier. Got it. 
my wife is Swiss and she's trying to convince me that we can move back there. And I've been oh. telling her that I can't practice there. Did you hear anything about Switzerland? Actually, I do think there might be a doctor that is working in Switzerland in that group. So I would highly recommend sure. checking it out because, you know, it, be, it could be beautiful. I've always wanted to go there. That's one of the countries I have not been to in Europe. And I would totally love to see, especially the Italian-Swiss border. So if you go, I'll come visit. <laughs> We'd love to have you. <laughs> so let's get nuts and bolts, right? Let's talk about credentialing. It couldn't be worse than here, right? Like the surgery center where I own a share just asked me for everything. I'm surprised they didn't ask for my high school diploma. They asked for everything just because they went with a new credentialing company. They couldn't just give them my old. No, I had to fill out all those forms again for a place where I'm already operating and even own share. So it can't be worse than this. What was it like for you? It's, you know what, honestly, I don't think it is as bad as back home. And I think you just brought up a really good point. And the reason why is because in the United States, you have to do all this paperwork for every state, every hospital, surgery center, that type of thing. So it's a lot of redundancy and a lot of just stupid paperwork. For Australia and New Zealand, yes, you do have to do a lot of the stupid paperwork. You do have to turn in like your diplomas from med school, residency, board certification, your work history since you graduated residency. That's actually fine. But the cool thing about it is you only have to do it really that one time. Because Australia and New Zealand are more centralized, when you get licensed in New Zealand, you're licensed for the whole country. There's no such thing as, oh, I'm going to move from this hospital to another hospital. Now I have to do a whole new license. It's one license to rule them all kind of thing. Um, and <laughs> Coming, uh, I, I see what you did there. See what I did there. New Zealand, <laughs> right? Peter Jackson, appreciate it. So it's the same type of thing in Australia. We have what we call OPRA, which is basically the Australian Health Practitioner Registry um, Association. And it basically gives you a license to practice throughout the entire country. So you don't have to worry about moving from state to state, territory to territory. If you do move to a hospital, yeah, they might ask you for some paperwork, but it's literally um, just like copies of things. It's not having to do a lot of the same stuff all over again, like you do for these credentialing um, applications at different hospitals in different states. So I find it overall less onerous. Just getting started is the hard part. How long did it take? If you're planning on doing it, how much lead time do you need to give yourself? So I always tell uh, my clients now, pre-COVID is very different. So pre-COVID, if you had all your crap together, like if, if you really were saying, okay, I got to get the heck out of here, get me out of here as fast as possible, I'm pretty sure I could have gotten you to um, either Australia or New Zealand probably within four to six months. And that includes visas and everything. That's still a long time. And that's for a candidate who is really on it. If I tell them I need you to go to a notary and get 10 documents notarized and they do it like the next day type of thing. It is, it was possible to do things that quickly. Then COVID hit and it changed and it got really just blown out. But then it's shifting again because we have a serious shortage of doctors in Australia and New Zealand, like a serious shortage. We need literally everything that you can imagine as far as specialties. And so it's starting to trickle to the up top echelon where the, our politicians are seeing this now. And so they're streamlining visas. They're making it a little bit easier and less onerous for doctors from overseas to come. Because quite honestly, we rely on that to run our systems. If we didn't have this number of overseas doctors, we would not have a health system. Where are all the doctors going? Everybody's having a shortage. If they're having a shortage and we're having a shortage, where are they? We're, we're, we're just not training. It's our fault, right? We're a guild. We're the ones that decide how many to train. And we're just, we set the bar at a certain level and supply and demand. We've decided that we'd rather have to, more, more demand than more supply. 
yeah, and it's a, it's a horrible bottleneck. We have the same thing here. I think in Australia and New Zealand, it's not so much based on the economy and making money per se. I think the problem is that it takes a lot longer to train doctors in Australia and New Zealand. And I think a lot of it comes down to the duty hours and the fact that they actually have protections for their doctors, which we don't really have back home. When I tell them about how we passed the duty hour restriction for 80 hour work weeks, they're looking at me like saying, what? Like 80 hours? Who does that? And these are, you know, resident physicians I'm talking to. A lot of them are topped out at 40 to 60 hours a week, but that is mind boggling for me. If we're doing double the hours and obviously it's going to take a lot less time to get through a residency. And then also if you take away the fact that American doctors don't have things like maternity leave or sick leave and annual leave that's four and six weeks long. When you take all those things away, there's going to be a lot more hours in a day, a lot more hours to train. Whereas our doctors here and in the UK and New Zealand, they're getting six weeks of vacation a year. They're getting sick leave. They have maternity leave, those types of things. So when you put all that into the pipeline, it takes a much longer time. So like to train an obstetrician gynecologist, it takes six years here. And that's, it's not like you're going to get a ready doctor really quickly if the shortage is, is there. So it takes a while. It takes a lot of forethought. And unfortunately, we just don't have enough doctors right now. And another thing which is interesting is when I was in New Zealand, there was, I noticed there was this like circle of life thing going on. A lot of the doctors from New Zealand were from the UK and they were leaving the UK because the UK also has a significant lot of stress, a lot of work hours, but also very low pay. So the UK doctors would come to New Zealand because New Zealand paid more. But then the New Zealand doctors would go to Australia or to the UK to get more like volume, more training, more specialty training. And so there was this nice little circle of folks leaving here, going here, leaving here, going here. And none of us have basically filled up. We all need more people. At least it's an equilibrium of sorts. Kind of exactly, exactly. So what did you see, what would have been the differences in practicing in New Zealand and Australia? Your experiences were different because you were in very rural New Zealand and you're in urban or, or suburban Australia. But aside from those geographic differences that might have similarities in the United States, like the systems and the cultures and how has practicing been different between the two countries? I think that's part of the reason why I don't think I could come back now because the practice of medicine in New Zealand and also Australia is like magnificent compared to back home in that we don't have that middle layer of insurance mess. <laughs> and we also don't have that middle layer of EMR mess right now. Obviously we are going to get there eventually, but when I was in New Zealand, one of the most amazing things to me is that once again, I did work in a rural hospital, but a lot of those people had actually been born in that same hospital. And so when I would do clinic, I would get a paper chart that would sometimes like literally a half, a half, a couple of inches thick. And it was literally the person's entire health history from the time they'd been born at that hospital. And it was in paper and it was in front of me and I could touch it and I could flip through it and I can read through it. And that was amazing that I didn't have to rely on the EMR or try to bring pieces of information together. The other thing that made it beautiful is that there's no insurance companies. This is all universal healthcare. Whenever I saw a patient, if I needed to do something on her, I didn't have to worry about prior authorization. I didn't have to say, look, I have to get the front office staff to verify through your insurance if I can do an endometrial biopsy on you today, even though we know you need one. You'll have to come back another visit so that I can do that once we get prior auth. 
that's not a thing in New Zealand at all. Anything that I ordered was free. Imaging, if I needed to get labs or bloods, whatever I wanted to do was completely utter free. There were a couple of tests that might require a little bit of out-of-pocket, like notoriously the MRI was one that was like guarded, the underworld gates. You couldn't get one unless you really had a good reason. And even if you wanted to get one done, I think the out-of-pocket for the patient was maybe $200. So just having the ability to practice purely, that's what I always tell people back home. I get a chance to practice like a real doctor. Like I can look at the patient in front of me, see what they need, order the appropriate tests and take care of them without having to worry about whether or not their insurance will cover it. And that is probably the most amazing thing about practicing in Australia and New Zealand. What's malpractice like? Non-existent. <laughs> so... Is it like working for the VA where it's like it impossible? Is. Okay. It is. So it's interesting. So when I first got here, you do still have private malpractice insurance. So the government does cover if you work in a public institution, but a lot of doctors choose to get the top up with a private malpractice insurance company. And when I got my first quote for here, the gentleman quoted it to me and he told me it was going to be, I think, I think he told me it was like, I think it was a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars. And I was like, a month? And he's like, a year. And I'm like, a month? And he's a year. And I kept <laughs> yelling at him a month because I didn't understand how that could work. I was like, in my mind, you're just joking. That's impossible <laughs> because I just left the United States and I paid $78,000. So you cannot be telling me that I'm only going to pay $1,200 Australian in one year for the exact same coverage. One million, three million type of coverage. So they're able to do that because once again, the malpractice rates are so incredibly low and the awards are low too. There's no such thing as a $20 million payout. That's not a thing. I've never seen that here. And I'm an obstetrician, so I would know. It's just not a thing here. So you don't have to once again, worry about that aspect either. No CYA medicine. Oh, you're, you're sell a hard sell. You're making a convincing argument. Well, let's talk about something that wouldn't affect my practice. Let's okay. talk about pregnancy care. How does pregnancy care differ between New Zealand and Australia and the United States, like midwives, doulas, family physicians? Like It is so very different. And interesting enough, if I was counseling other obstetricians that want to come, I would actually say that the least shocking way to get used to the systems is probably to come from the United States to Australia to New Zealand, because that's literally how the care model seems to trickle down. Obviously, in the United States, we have obstetricians. In some places, we have midwives. But in Australia, we have a hybrid system, which is similar to what you would see in some places in the States to, like, for example, I know that Vanderbilt has has a really great midwifery program for patients who are low risk that want to book in and have midwifery care. And that's the same type of thing that you see here in Australia. However, New Zealand is very different. New Zealand is um, a midwifery-led system, which means for an uncomplicated, healthy patient, they may never in their life see an obstetrician. And I have actually seen patients when I have gotten called in for a complication or a problem they don't know what I am. They're like, you're the doctor. And they're just like, okay, are you the GP? They don't know because they're not familiar with an obstetrician. They've never seen them antenatally. So when you fall pregnant in um, New Zealand, normally what happens is you find a midwife that you want to book in with and they see you your entire antenatal care. They will admit you to the hospital when you're in labor. 
They will deliver your baby. And then when you are discharged home, they will come do home visits for you. And you will never see an obstetrician unless some type of problem arises. So very different from what we see in the United States. It's not very medicalized at all, which is awesome. And I really I like that. And I found that this is a very comfortable way for me. I know for some Americans and some obstetricians that have been here, they can't handle it. It's very, they want to be very hands-on and they don't see how this is, this is right. Like, how can you admit a patient without telling me the doctor who's on call. I've actually been on call and had babies delivered. I know nothing about them. Like literally the patient delivers and goes home. And I, oh, I had a baby last night. She went home. Everything was fine. Okay. That's great. Say <laughs> they're low risk. They did not need me. And I felt that in, in New Zealand and also in Australia, I got the chance to live up to my expertise. I did the four years of training and got board certified because I'm a specialist in women's healthcare and obstetric, you know, healthcare and complications. And I actually get to work up to that standard in Australia and New Zealand because I'm seen as that expert in pregnancy care. So it's almost like being a baby maternal fetal medicine doctor here that only super bad stuff goes to MFM, but the actual obstetrician deals with everything else. I do the thyroid disease and the gestational diabetes and the high blood pressure and preeclampsia. So those things directly come to us. But everything else that's very normal stays with the midwives. And I, I love it that way. I think it's a really good system. What about... C-sections and Pitocin, are they more or less reliant on intervention than we are? Sounds like less. I would say it's interesting, once again, that continuum. I think that New Zealand is very non-interventional. They see pregnancy and childbirth as a very natural process. And if there it needs to be an intervention, that's why you have obstetrician on call. And a midwife can call and say, oh, my patient's not progressing. Do we need Pitocin? It's actually called Sintocin here. So that's another thing you have to learn is new, new names. So you do have ability for the midwives to collaborate and escalate to you if there's a concern. In Australia, I find it's a little bit more more like back home where there's a, definitely a little bit more of a um, hands-on medical approach, but still nothing um, like what we see in the United States. So we still do have midwives in Australia that deliver all babies. If a patient comes in labor and has uncomplicated labor, a midwife will deliver the baby. Obstetrician is really only there if something goes wrong or once again, they need to escalate to some type of problem. Was there anything about either the practice of OBGYN or practice of medicine in general that surprised you down there? Yeah, there was a lot. I, I think that when I first got here, I was surprised about the non-interventional, non-medicalization of certain things. Like in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen because I'm so CYA. I'm coming from the United States. I'm an obstetrician. The average obstetrician gets sued 2.3 times in their career. I'm looking out for something that is going to come back to get us. It, we have to do everything absolutely perfectly. It has to be by the book. And it shocked me, like I said, that, that a patient could be admitted without a doctor knowing. And that patients could be administered like just general medications without a doctor's order. There were a lot of things that shocked me. And I was just like, oh, that's odd. Things that we do in the United States that's not done in Australia or New Zealand. And I, I yeah, it was a little bit eye-opening initially. But when I started to see, oh my God, their outcomes are actually just as good, if not better than ours. I'm like, obviously somebody's doing something wrong. And I'm guessing it's us because if you think that everything they're doing is wrong, there should be death, dying, and destruction to go along with that. But it's not. They have less maternal morbidity and mortality and neonatal morbidity and mortality. So something must be right. 
even though they're not as hands-on interventionalists as we are. Yeah, it's, it, that was eye-opening. Like just, for example, fetal monitoring and labor. It's very common for low-risk women to not have any type of external monitoring, but just Doppler and listening to the heart tones. And there's, there's guidelines around when you should listen, but that is unfathomable to most obstetricians. That's not what we do. You find a reason to put that baby on a monitor when you're in labor, because if something were to happen, you need that, that non-stress test to prove that baby was fine when you had it. But that's not the way, you know, they approach things here. And yeah, it was very eye-opening to me that someone could labor without you having the baby on the monitor. Like, what are we doing here? Kind of thing. And they're just stop learning just as nice. Or what really blew my mind is the fetoscope. When you see some old school stuff coming out with the little stethoscope with the little horn and they're listening to the baby, that's okay. You can do that. And it's just, it was a really eye-opening way of looking at medicine again. Let's change gears a little bit. Can we talk about race? Is that okay? Sure, of course. So what has your experience been as a black female physician practicing in a predominantly white country compared to being a black female physician physician practicing in a, well, a predominantly white country? So I guess it's getting aside. What are the differences that you've experienced in your professional life and if you want in your personal life as well? I have to admit, in our, and this is a very hot button topic because you could probably find another either African or Black American person living in Australia, New Zealand. They might have something different to say. And that's fair. And what I always say is that is your experience. So I'm going to give you my experience. So once again, a Black woman from Atlanta, Georgia, from the South, born and bred. I have a Black husband and little Black boy. We love it here. We love New Zealand. We love it here. And my husband always says that he feels a thousand times safer here than he ever did back home. There is not that overriding, overreaching kind of fear that you will sometimes have as a Black person in the United States. It is unfortunate, but that is a, a truth that we live in. And I know that I've actually lost friends that are not Black that sometimes feel that maybe you're just, you know, exaggerating a bit. But, you know, I, I can tell them about experiences and things that have actually happened to me. And I'm like, Wait, I'm a doctor and I should be protected from these things. But that's unfortunately not the way it is in some places in the United States. And it can be in other places too. But I think because New Zealand and Australia don't have that same history that we have in the United States, that there's not this preconceived notion of what you are, who you are, and what you're going to do. And it's really refreshing to not have that hanging over your head. We have personally not had any negative experiences that have made us say, this is a horrible place to raise a child we need to leave. In fact, the opposite has happened and that we would not want to raise our son back home because we know that he is safe here and that is not going to be his experience. He's not going to have those issues come up in the future. And once again, I say that because this is our personal experience and I'm sure there's other people out there that say, whatever, she's lying and I, I know it's this, that, and the other. And once again, I'm in Melbourne, Australia. It's an extraordinarily diverse, you know, big city. I don't know if my experiences would be different if I was in Perth or Brisbane or whatever. But here, I feel safe, I feel secure, I feel supported, and I've never had an issue. What about professionally? Professionally, I noticed that I've never had any issues professionally, but I have to admit the one complaint I have about Australia and New Zealand is ageism. Not racism per se, but ageism. I do find that being an American gives me a privilege that puts everything else to the side. I do feel that the minute I open my mouth and they hear that American accent, 
things change completely because being American trumps a lot of other things. So the color and everything, who cares? It's like, whatever, you're an American, all right, this is awesome type of thing, which is really cool. I've never had that experience where being American gives you that much privilege, which is really maybe unfair. And I know that's a whole nother conversation, but it has been, in my experience, really nice. The ageism, however, is really annoying because it takes so long to make an attending physician in Australia, New Zealand. It's expected that you have to be old and gray to be good. And that's not what we have. The best doctors I find, and I always tell my family members, you got that sweet spot. You want somebody who's between five and 15 years out of residency kind of thing. Those are the people that are like up to date on everything. They got the new procedures. They know how to read the evidence-based medicine. They're not setting their ways to the point they won't change per se. But then after that, you know, you kind of get settled and you're on that downward spiral and you're like, oh, I'm about to retire and I always do stuff this way. This is the way I'm going to do it to the day I die. And then you have the younger docs who are still wet behind the ears and still learning how to be that attending physician. But here I find that if you are not old and gray, a lot of times people do not maybe respect or listen to you or appreciate the fact that you are an expert, that you do have expertise. So I find that annoying. That was, I think that was really annoying. Yeah. Like I, I was doing laparoscopic surgery with another colleague who I was actually helping and he was older and he's an older white man and he was not really up to date with laparoscopic stuff. And I was actually helping him along and they would not talk to me. It was just like, okay, so he's obviously the expert. I'm like, actually, no, it's me. I think that's a little bit on the difficult side. And that's whatever. Ageism is like, whatever. I think you just have to prove your experience and let your, let your qualities speak for themselves. So for anyone who's considering being the next expat MD, aside from informing them that the URL and the Instagram and the Twitter handle are all taken, what advice, what's one golden nugget? that you'd have for them? I would say that there's amazing amounts of information and research out there. And I think that's the thing that's changed a lot in the last 10 years since we did our first foray into New Zealand. And I would say the very first and most important thing is do your research, look out there, most Facebook groups, read about people's blogs and experiences and stuff like that. Because there's literally people, there's an American pharmacist I used to follow. He has a blog about moving to New Zealand. So there's information out there. And the thing is that you don't wait. That's another common thing that I think Americans do. We always going to want to wait till the kids get older, till the kids graduate, till the kids finish college. And, and there's a finite amount of time that you can do this. Unfortunately, going back to age, it can be very difficult to get a visa to come over here after the age of 50. Doctors do have a little bit of a like in. The older you get, the more likelihood you are to have medical issues, the harder it may be for you to get in. And I would just say, don't wait. There have been a lot of people that thought that they were going to do it one day and you just never know one day. It might be full. There might not be any jobs for a couple of years. So I would definitely say, don't wait. Um, if you're thinking about it, do it. Can't hurt. And next thing you know, you might be here for 11 years. This, is, this has been a great interview. Now I want to give you the opportunity to plug ExpatMD. So what are the services that you offer? Thank you. I started ExpatMD last year. And the reason why is after eight years, I've helped so many doctors come over to Australia and New Zealand. And so I decided to consolidate that knowledge. And so I wrote a book to explain everything that you need to do to get over. But more importantly, the actual consulting firm actually holds your hand. So for a lot of doctors, you're busy. You have a lot of different things going on in your life and you just don't have the time to do all the research and reading. And that's where we come in. So I have different packages for doctors. So I'll do everything 
anything from rewriting your CV in a more Australasian format. I'll help you with a cover letter. That's an, a very important part of an application that Americans don't even really utilize that much, which is critical in Australia, New Zealand. Um, and I can actually help interview prep with your board interview. So a lot of people don't realize you have to do an interview with your board in order to get your board certification and also job interviews and of course, job search. So full service. We also help with relocation. So I've actually um, prepared like full dossiers of like schools and rental homes and where you might want to live for doctors that have actually uh, come over. So pretty much do everything. So that's what ExpatMD can offer for you. And we find it at expatmd.com? That is correct. Excellent. Dr. Carmen Brown, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I totally do appreciate this. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory for unbiased information about locum tenens and see if it should be your next chapter. And remember, locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend mend to burnt out ends. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.